You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is President Heather Mason. If you're a first-time listener, be sure to check out the previous episodes. Please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Today's guest is Neil Wexler, retail management consultant and part-time owner in Montlake Bicycle Shop located in Seattle, Washington. After 40 years of running small to medium-sized retail companies, Neil switched roles and began consulting retailers to success and profitability. In love with the bicycle business, Neil has taken every opportunity to get education, training, and professional guidance available. He helps retailers with almost any aspect of bicycle retail management. He can address your current concerns about staff development, inventory planning and control, vendor relations, financial analysis, continuous improvement programs, succession strategy, business valuation. He's an MBDA P2 consultant and a very personal close friend of mine. Every conversation with him leaves me hanging for more. And I'm so super excited to welcome Neil to Bicycle Retail Radio. How are you? I feel great, Heather, and I'm really happy you invited me today. I'm reading this bio, and I mean, you have so much to offer, and you have just made it your, you know, you've dove into the bicycle industry, learning as much as you can. You're working with the MBDA as a P2 consultant, and I'm just really excited to where this conversation is going to go today. I'm hopeful that retailers will get to know a little bit more about you. And yeah, it's been busy working with retailers and um, this incredible boom how are you feeling navigating the times right now as someone who's, you know, part owner in a bicycle store, but also helping consult retailers? Well, you know, it's been a terrible couple of years for so many people, but for Mount Lake Bicycle Shop, for my stores, it has gone very well. It's been very difficult in the stores, but, you know, we did very well and we're happy with it. Some retailers didn't do well at all. Some retailers just didn't get enough merchandise and store faces different circumstances. Those that you know did make quite a bit of money and invested it wisely in their businesses or put it away for future use and are ready for whatever 2022 brings should be in really good shape. Yeah, I feel like cash flow is something that I'm hearing a lot of retailers talk often about now and managing those back orders. Definitely something that the MBDA is focused on, making sure retailers are in tune to. You know, as we get into today's conversation, I, I just want to like rewind almost and start a little bit with about Neil. <laughs> I mean, you've started a few bicycle stores. You've successfully in transition out of the day-to-day operations at Montlake, and you're now consulting in sales and retail service, product management relationships. Can you give us just a little bit about your past experience? Well, yes, certainly. It started for me in the mid-1970s as a hobby. I used to buy old bikes and try to restore them and resell them just for fun. But late in the 70s, I got offered a job at a very tiny bike shop in Urbana, Illinois, where I was in graduate school. And um, I took that job and it was very part-time, but I started to learn. It was great. The owner of the store, Paul Nicholson, was a fabulous mentor, just an amazing guy. And then in 1980, I opened up Montlake Bicycle Shop in Seattle. It was 700 square feet. We had one main brand was Bianchi. We imported a great hand-built frame from England called Mercian, and that was what we were selling. And I say we, it was really just me for 
until 1972, I think was 1982, I think was the first year I actually hired somebody. And then in 83, we moved into the building that we're in now, just across the street from the original location. And that year, we also signed down with Cannondale before they even started making bicycles. And so we were one of their very first dealers when they came out. And that turned out to be a good thing. You know, these companies kind of took a chance on me, but Bianchi, when we started, was really just getting started again in the U.S. market. They didn't even have a U.S. division yet. It was just sold through Vespa. And we were already a candle accessory dealer. Anyhow, in 1988, I opened up what was called Main Street Mountain Bikes in Bellevue, Washington. And that went well for a number of years. But I continued opening up a Kirkland Bicycle Shop in 92. The problem with some of the places I opened were that the buildings were low-rent buildings and always slated for demolition. And in both Bellevue and Kirkland, I continually had to move because the landlords all wanted higher-priced rental situations. So that worked out fine in Kirkland. But in Bellevue, I ran into a point where I couldn't find any place that I felt like I could pay the rent and make a profit also. So I merged the two stores into Kirkland Bicycle Shop. Then in 2007, I had a big event where I actually lost the entire staff of that store at once. And I went over there and started again by myself. But I got very lucky and found great employees right away and got it going. And it was an amazing experience. In 2009, one of my long-term employees, Josh Harris, took over that store. I sold him uh, 75% of the stock in the company. It was a standalone company separate from Mont Lake, so I was able to do that. And that has gone very well ever since. Then a few years later, I started making plans towards doing something similar for my Seattle store, Mont Lake Bicycle Shop. I planned way ahead for that because I wanted to make sure that I didn't run into a crisis. So I was 60 years old at the time. I wanted to make sure that I didn't run into some health crisis or whatever, where I was in a hurry to sell it. So I started planning with my two managers. They were very interested in buying it. It was like a five-year plan. It really turned into six or six and a half year plan before it was actually finished. But that that went great. And so then at the end, one of the managers left, moved home to Michigan. And, and Gary, who stuck with it, brought in two other employees and the three of them made that purchase. Wow. I mean, such an incredible background. I mean, starting with 700 square feet, I can't even imagine. And it sounds like you've had an entrepreneurial spirit your entire life. Has that just been a part of your personality since you were, you know, in high school or college? I don't know. I don't particularly think so. But, you know, that's for somebody else to evaluate my personality rather than me. But I would say that, you know, the 700 square feet at the beginning actually was not nearly as cramped as the stores have been many times since because back in 1980, how many kinds of bikes were there? There were no mountain bikes on the market yet. They existed, but it was more a hobby thing and, you know, just getting started. But there was no mass production of mountain bikes or hybrids or gravel bikes or electric bikes. You know, there was the 10-speed bike. That was it. And so to have, you know, a few Bianchi 10-speeds was not really a bad selection of bikes. Whereas now a few bikes doesn't really make much of a store, does it? You know, all your experience, I'm sure definitely for someone who wants to get into the business or as you're saying, transition out. I mean, you've been there, you've lived it and you are living it. 
I'm always curious about like the Neil at the end of the day. Like, so where do you live? Can I ask some personal questions? Are you married? Like, <laughs> give us the scoop. Okay. Well, I live right near the Montlake neighborhood where my original store is. And I've lived there. I've lived around here always. Uh, not always, but since, you know, I started the business. It's a very quick and easy ride down to the store for me, but it's a very strenuous ride home because we, I live on a 23% grade. So it's um, steep. It's not long, though. So that's where I live. And I am married. I met my wife just about 50 years ago next week. We got married in 1979, though. We went on a honeymoon in Newfoundland, Canada, a bike touring trip, you know, camping. And that was fabulous. Then a year later, we quit our jobs in Illinois and took a two months riding our bikes from Scotland to Sicily another camping trip. And then we moved to Seattle specifically to open up the bike store. I have one daughter. She was born in 85. Her first bicycle was a 1988 Mongoose Littlefoot. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's just a little bitty bike, just That's a 12 inch cool. bike. Wow. I mean, Neil, I was going to ask, are you a cyclist? But all these amazing trips and to find a life partner of coming on 50 years, that I, you must have some incredible memories. Wow. So you still, do you race, Neil, or more just touring and recreational? Well, more than anything, not those, but just everyday transportation. Mm. I just ride my bike all the time. And, but I love, you know, these other things. And I, I have done, you know, most of the kinds of things in bike racing. Yes, I did get into bike racing for no good reason. I'm not an athlete. I just enjoyed trying. I did it in three, you know, in different phases. Like I did it way back in the 80s when a few of my customers said, let's make a racing team. And so we did it for fun. It wasn't like a sponsorship kind of thing that we did with any commercial intent to it. It was just for fun. And it was fun. But they all quit pretty much, you know, midway through the first season. And I stuck with it longer. Then when my daughter, after my daughter was born, I really quit for quite a few years until she went off to college. And then I started again and I was 50 at the time. And so that was a whole different kind of thing. And I, I knew I would never even see the final sprint in a race again, much less be in it. But, you know, I found it was just as much fun, almost as much fun, I should say, to be sprinting for 30 years, the 40th place in a race to beat whoever was trying for also for 40th. You know, it's the same game. You're just not going quite as fast, but it's still fun to do. I want to ask you, Neil, I just want to ask you, you know, coming from, you know, being involved in a bike shop, you know, as an owner or even a manager, do you feel like racing or, or showing up to those events, like gives you kind of like, I don't know, a little more connection to the sport or like a little more connection to what's happening? Like, do you think that's a good thing for an owner or manager to be involved in just to add to what, you know, their everyday, what they're, I don't know, subjected to? Well, it certainly doesn't hurt Heather, but the thing is that bike racers are not your you know, it's not going to be what's going to support your store. And so I don't think it's very important. Really, at that very start, way back, you know, I wasn't that young when I started racing, but, you know, it seems like it from now. But at the time, being almost 30 was not a young time to start bike racing. But I did it really because I really didn't know anything about racing bikes was one of the things. And even though we don't sell racing bikes mostly to bike racers, just knowing the product category that much better was very helpful for me. And of course, at the time, I had a much, much bigger role in every sale that went on in the store and everything like that. So 
it was very helpful for me, but in a different kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. I miss racing a little bit, but it is like, you know, there was that, like, you know, you have a goal, you have something you're looking forward to or working hard for, and then you get out there and halfway through the race and you're sweating and you're breathing so heavy and you're like, why am I doing this? But then you get done and you're like, I'm so happy I did this. So it's racing's mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're saying. <laughs> So Neil, you have been very active in showing up to our MBDA Monday Mingle, our member mingles, our virtual uh, networking events. And the conversations, we never know what we're going to get. And you know, I've been super thankful for the retailers who continue to show up and, and help each other. You know, I can tell because you actually just reached out to me and you know, had some ideas for topics we could talk about that you do love consulting and helping other retailers. Is there a certain time, you know, throughout your career, you know, with the businesses and transitioning maybe out of the shop from day to day that you decided that consulting was a path you wanted to take? Well, it was really easy. Somehow along my life, most of these transitions and things have been just very easy for me. When I started as a freshman in college, I had no idea what to major in. And I was just at a loss coming out of high school. But really, almost since then, since I went back, I dropped out of the University of Washington midway through my freshman year, and somehow I figured out where I was going. I had a nine-year span working in the sciences, in ecology and the plant sciences, and I knew when I wanted to be done with that and I needed something else, and I knew that I wanted to open a bike shop, and I got somebody to offer me a job without actually asking for it. So it was It was just really good. But the least surprising of the transitions I went through was going into consulting because I think anybody who I've told, anybody I know who I told, you know, this is what I want to do next, nobody was surprised because I just, you know, I just have put a lot into not just running the bike shop, but learning about the bike business. And that's reading books, everything I could do. And I just always enjoyed it. And so what could be better than to share the knowledge and just help other people who, you know, are a little less far along in that same direction. So I feel like I've been lucky all the way along with like things not being so hard. But when you offered me this position to help in P2 consulting, that confirmed for me that my luck hasn't run out yet. It's weird how life just continues to throw at us these, I I call them moments of magic. Like, you know, you think you're headed in a direction and then it's like reaffirmed because it just naturally goes that way. Yeah, we updated the website recently. So if those interested, go to mbda.com, P2 Consulting. There's a bio on Neil and, and a little more information on, you know, what he can offer you with. But we have so many inquiries coming from people looking to start a bike shop, maybe take a bike shop to the next level talk about service, talk about even transitioning out of the shop. You know, those seem to be like the the key times, starting, next level, transition out. Do you think there's something about those times, Neil, like that those pivotal times require more guidance or, I mean, do you hear those times come up often in conversations that, you know, those are something that people come to you often looking for help with? Well, yes, certainly that's true. Not everybody needs guidance. There are certainly people who have a strong network of colleagues or even mentors and they they're getting guidance all along and that's fabulous there are people who participate in the NBDA and the different networking opportunities that we offer and some of those you know they're getting real good guidance from experienced people and for what they need that may be you know just exactly right for other people you know it's different but 
you know, for people who don't have a lot of backup like that, or they have more specific needs, then, you know, what the this P2 consulting thing is just a really great option also. And those times that you mentioned, they're really important because, you know, getting off on the right foot with a new store can make a huge difference. Most people, they're investing either their entire life savings or they're going deep into debt or whatever to get started. And if it doesn't go well, and we know it doesn't always go well, you know, it's just a big problem. And so putting a little bit into, you know, not having to relearn from the start, but just it can be really helpful to talk to somebody who's been through it. So and it can also just make, you know, working more enjoyable when things are going well. So and then as far as the bringing to the next level or facing, you know, problems that come up, there are people where it's just continually just getting better and everything. That's great. And there are people where they do run into a stagnation or you know, the profits aren't what they can't meet their goals with what they're doing, or their expenses are rising faster than their income is, and whatever. And it can drag on for a long time, or can bring them down quickly. But it's something that, you know, if that's where you are, then you should be looking for help. It's just a really, it's available. So why not? And then, you know, more than any of the others, though, the transition out is something the first time you sell a business, first time you retire, you know, you've never done it before. It's the biggest deal because it's, you know, if it doesn't go well, that's kind of like it, you know, it's it's permanent. So it really is worth making sure that you do everything you can to have a good transition to whatever is next for you, whether it's retirement or a new career. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, like I'm fortunate. I have my father who I call like my rock and I, we have coffee hours and we sit and we bounce stuff. You know, I bounce all these ideas off of him and you know, he hasn't, when I owned a shop, he's never, you know, had a shop before. Um, And so I did that. I called on my network of people and it's so important to have someone to talk to who I feel like has been there or can point out the things that your brain, you you can't even think of, you can't even imagine, right? Because, you know, everyone sees things in a different way. I would almost think of just going to someone often to just bounce ideas (laughs) and consult I'm thinking about starting a new shop. You know, there's so many things. There's the business plan. There's just the layout of the shop. I mean, what kind of questions? You must get everything thrown at you, huh? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot. Everybody's different. Everybody has different things they know about and don't know about. But the kind of questions that, are, you know, yeah, there are a lot of different questions for sure. I know. I'm thinking about like even like point of sale, like well, talking about profitability, there are so many different directions in a shop where you can find hidden, you know, sources of revenue. It could be like cutting fixed expenses. Will you actually look at the books with someone and help them analyze even into their financials? Well, if it's an established business, then certainly that would be the normal thing to do. But that tells you, you know, kind of what the state of the finances are in the business, which is very important. But if you want to solve problems or you want to advance, what you want to know is why those things are the way they are, why the financial situation is what it is. And so then there's a lot of very different kinds of things you want to do in addition to that. And if somebody, for whatever reason, doesn't want to you know, show you their books or go through for anything, anybody that we deal with, it's going to be totally a customized thing for what they want to do, what they want to know, where they want help. And so I would never you know, expect anything from them other than what they want it to be. You know, but the big things really are going to be about how the business is run, you know, how things are communicated within the business, what is done to support the employees, what's done to keep 
employee morale up, keep everything with a positive, you know, approach to it, um, how customers are treated. We're looking for what can be done best rather than just what is the financial status. This is bringing me back to a memory of, I think, almost like the first time you and I ever spoke. And it was about, I think I had written something about our my staff meetings I used to run on Saturdays. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And we just called and you were like, tell me what you did. And we just had a great conversation. I forgot that was like one of our first calls. That brings back great memory. But there is so much in regards to, yeah, staffing and then, you know, as of late vendor relationships and navigating those. There's so many little areas, right? The time, let's just talk about that transitioning out of your business. I'm thinking like as as I save for my own retirement, all of us have like a financial advisor, someone we work with. It would make sense that you would have someone to help you through this who's experienced. I noted earlier, you said you didn't want to wait till like you were ill or, you know, you were forced to act quickly that you started this process years prior. And is that something that you would recommend? I mean, I would almost consider, you know, there might be some special things that you'd suggest to retailers. So you're not caught off guard, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I... I thought that was the thing to do. As it is, I've stayed healthy and there's no reason why I need to stop working now, you know, yeah. but when I was 60, I didn't know how I would feel when I'm 69, you know. So that's um I just think it's wise to have something in place. You can get yourself into a corner like really I admit that when the time came, you know, I w- I did have second thoughts like do I really want to do I really want to sell this? But of course I was committed and they had you know, they had made their thing and that's fine. And I'm really so glad I did it. But one does get very attached over that much time, for sure. Yeah, some of the things that, you know, we'd want to be considering if as you are deciding to sell the business or whatever kind of transition you're looking for is what the actual goals are in selling it. For some people, it's going to be just to maximize the sale price so they have the most money possible to retire on. But other people will have other concerns and and there's going to be a balance. They're always going to want to get enough money to retire on. But, you know, for some people, it's going to be a question of whether or not you want the business to continue successfully, whether that's important to you, what you want to become of the business, whether that is personally important to you, what happens with the employees, whether their destiny is important to you or your customers even, you know, that that have supported you for however much time. And so you kind of have to define what's important in order to know what to do. And then, you know, I think you really should be thinking about setting a price that works for you. And so, you know, think about what's the minimum sale price that you could get by on, just so you know, to the best you can, what that is. And then think about what's, you know, what's an amount that you would feel thrilled about. Like, I got this much for my business. That's great. Even if it wasn't like absolutely the most possible to get for it, that you would be really happy with it. That's a good number to know. Not that you necessarily don't want to get more than that, but that is, I think, useful. And then, you know, I would be asking somebody, do they already have an idea of what the market value of their business is? And some people do. And then we'd want to figure out why they think that, what the evidence is for that. Then do they have any prospects in mind? Like both in cases, when I sold these two businesses, I decided ahead of time who I wanted to sell it to, and it worked out really well. But not everybody has that situation. And if they don't have a prospect already, you know, that they're working with, 
who do they think might make a good prospect, whether it's a specific person or a type of person or, you know, where are they going to find one? What do they have ideas about that? And then, you know, then we, of course, want to look at the detailed financial information to try to figure out, you know, what the business is worth from a different perspective. And, you know, from that perspective, I think in one of your earlier podcasts with David DeKaiser, he talked about business valuation, where he said it's pretty simple that most people are going to be borrowing money from a bank and the bank is going to want to know, is the business making enough money to pay back the loan? And does are the prospects that it's going to continue to make enough money to pay back the loan and continue forward? And so then, you know, it's going to be a question of how much money needs to be borrowed, how much is it going to cost to pay that back, and is there going to be anything left for the for the person who is doing it? Nobody knows your bike shop better than you, but the people who might come the closest are other bike shop owners who are facing the same day-to-day and long-term challenges that you are. Joining a P2 group is one of the most affordable ways to take a deep dive into your business alongside other bike shop owners who are experts in what you do. Reach out today so we can tell you more about how a P2 group can make a difference in your business. many things to consider and it, it is it's like a it's a big huge business decision but there's also that emotional component to it you know it's your baby that you started and your employees and your customers and it's really a very pivotal time and it makes sense everything you're saying it's a hard thing though I can't are you still in your store are you in Montlake weekly Neil or well uh, yeah I mean it's only been since the middle of October that I've been so-called retired. So weekly only means two weeks. And yes, I've been there at least weekly. I was there yesterday. I got a phone call. We need a check signed. Carolyn, who's my successor as president, wasn't there to sign it. I'm still on the account. And no reason not to be since I still own almost as much as everybody else in the partnership does. So, and, you know, a customer was selling us a bike. And so I went down and signed it. Like I say, it doesn't take me very long to get there. Yeah, I, I think I might like wake up and want to go to the shop every day. You know, like you're at like, you know, this is what you get into a routine. I didn't realize it was just a, since October that you've been officially. So yeah, I'm asking you, are you there weekly? You're like, yeah, it's been two weeks. I've been only working two days a week since the pandemic started. So it's it's been, you know, it's not as abrupt as all that. I just worked Saturday and Sunday. It's great because the most fun thing is talking to customers, helping customers. So that's what I've been doing for the last year and a half. That's fun. Yeah. I remember I used to love a busy Saturday or busy Sunday. It was just, you meet so many interesting people and changing lives. But yeah, so part of the P2 consulting program is that you're also working with our P2 groups, which are a group of retailers who meet and they share data and they really help each other. Best business practices. We're having a couple special P2 functions, one in Tampa and one in Roanoke coming up, or one in Naples, sorry, and one in Roanoke coming up. And you're actually coming to give a presentation around operations and staffing without giving it away, Neil. Can you talk a little bit about that or, you know, maybe a couple of highlights or? Okay. Well, kind of what I've been focused on is that for as long as I've been in this line of work, it seemed like it's been accepted as common knowledge that this is a low margin business and it doesn't pay well. It's 
you know, we're supposed to do it because we're passionate about it, not because we're going to make a good living. And there's just as an example of as this, like being so widespread, just currently there's a three month long series of articles in Bicycle Retailer about this topic that's entitled Labor of Love, Why Bike Business Salaries and Profits Are So Darned Low. And I really kind of believed this premise for way too long. And it was easy to believe it. When I started, I made somewhere around $5 an hour and I was happy to get it. And I just, you know, it's just what I wanted to do. And I really never expected to make much money doing it. I just, so I, I fed right into that narrative, you might say. But eventually I observed that it just didn't have to be the case for a well-managed bicycle store. And over time, I actually started to think it was even backwards that maybe it's the low salaries that are one of the causes of the poor profits rather than the result of poor profits. So that, I, you know, my plan to kind of lead a discussion about what we can do to have a well-managed bike store that breaks that mold. You know, these are some of the, I have, here's some questions that, you know, might come up in this kind of discussion. Do we undervalue ourselves because we don't realize how much the riding public really wants us to be here? Does our staff trust that the management has their interests in mind along with the interests of the company? Do employees speak to management freely, maybe even eagerly, when they have observations, ideas, or problems that may be contrary to what the manager thinks? Does everyone work with a sense of urgency, or do things get excessively kind of chilled out when there are no customers around to interact with? And so if the answers are not yes to these questions, you know, what can we do to train and recruit, to recruit and train um, a staff that will get us there? That's what the general gist of what I'm going to try to do is. I love that topic. And I have seen those articles in Bicycle Retailer and very timely. And a lot of the, you know, the P2 groups we meet monthly and virtually. And a lot has been around how are you keeping your employees happy and how often are you doing training or evaluation? So this is a fantastic topic, Neil. And those questions are definitely thought provoking. So I'm looking forward to learning from you, you know, just switching over a, a little bit. And I just keep throwing these questions at you. I hope you don't mind. You're such a nice guest. I mean, we talked at the beginning of our conversation just about the incredible bike boom and the growth. And then we talked a little bit about just you know, current situation with cash flow. But in your opinion, is there any spot that retailers should be focusing right now for best success? Well, you know, there's a lot of things. You brought one of the big ones up early in this conversation when you talked about your inventory levels and, and buying and not overbuying. And so that's a big question is how much should we buy? You know, if bikes start to become available again, it could be that it goes from, you know, where you can't get some of your most important bikes where you can get quite a lot of them, who knows? And then, you know, how much should you buy? My view is that you should project your cash flow conservatively. You have to be careful not to buy more than you have confidence you'll have the ability to pay for it when the bill comes due. You have to look at your space carefully. It can be very harmful to buy so much and not be able to fit it and not be able to function as a store. I've done that a little bit, not too much, but you know. Some people have warehousing space, some don't. That can be very limiting, especially if you're in one of these very high rent areas like Seattle, where you just can't have as much room as you could someplace else. And then I think it's important not to spend excessively on models or categories of bikes that 
are kind of speculative for you, that aspirational, whatever you want to call it. It's good to have them, but just to be careful about how much of that you have. On the other hand, there's a lot of evidence that a really good supply is not forthcoming anytime soon, and that we're looking at 2022 to be another very difficult year to stock the store. I would go very aggressively for a lot of bicycles that are in the category that you have a proven track record with, that you know you know this sort of hybrid. In the case of my store, we sell a lot of these hybrids in this mid-range, mid to upper range, whatever. If we can get a reasonable size selection and we can fit them in the store and we have the cash to pay for them, you know, I don't mind filling the storage areas as long as we have the storage for them. And I think it's it's I think you have to kind of find that balance. So because if you underdo it, you may be, you know, in trouble with just not enough income. Yeah, I think you hit it right there with nothing experimental. I mean, that was always, you know, it was hard for me as the buyer in my own shop because I always wanted to buy stuff I liked, right? And mm-hmm. I had to stay away from that. Yeah, but right stay now, away from that. Yeah, that's stay away from that. So that's one topic. Another would be what else can you do for success in the coming time, especially with the uncertainty of you know supply. And, and right now, many dealers are have just begun a slow season, you might call it. What can we do now? Well, you know, find ways to connect with your customers, connect, especially with the customers who are new to bicycling, who have bought bikes in the pandemic and we don't know if they started to use them a lot or not, or how far are they into it? Like look for ways to connect. And it's not, there's no one right answer for everybody. It could be connecting by telephone, by email, by text, in person, if there's things that you can go to, but just find what you can. And then connecting over doesn't have to be the same thing, really anything. It could be, you know, bike rides, certainly classes that you might be able to teach, seminars that you might be able to hold any kind of in-store events, but just look for ways because a little bit of that connection can be really encouraging. Or you can find what it takes to encourage people, find out what, you know, what, what's holding them up and see if you can help them. You could really build your relationship very quickly with a lot of people that way. Oh, another aspect of the post-bike boom era that it's just going to be a different business. And we don't know exactly how it's going to be a different business, but we know some of the bike companies are going to be changing more than others. And some bike companies that have really been strong allies for us, really supportive, where they were, you know, a long time where that was the case. And then they've gotten really more focused on direct sales to consumers. And we just have to watch out. And if we have someone who's been a great supplier for us for a long time, but now has become our biggest competitor, we need to take it seriously. And, you know, as an independent bike dealer, you very likely can get by without any one particular brand. You know, you may be very associated with it, or you may, you know, have never had that kind of connection. But if you have, it can change. You know, it's just your suppliers need to be working with you. And if they're really just competitors and not that you can't accept some change because there, there will be change whether you want it or not. But if it's to the point where the deal is one where you're not earning a living, where you're not making a profit on what you're doing with them, then you have to look for what you can do instead. And there will be other options. Yeah. I was in a conversation with a retailer this weekend, actually. He said, you know, my business will never be the same, that, that my business has been forever changed by the bike boom. 
And you make a great point because a lot of our member networking moments, you know, certain brands will come up and the collective reasoning from the retailers who are there peer to peer helping is that you have to do what's best for your business. I mean, there's a lot of things to consider, but at the end of the day, you know, it's okay to do what's best for your business. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, those are hard conversations. I, I feel like we just like circle around a little bit and then come back to the, the tough conversation. It's a tough decision. Yeah. Well, it's really good to get a clear idea of what they're doing and, you know, see that it's not all the same. Not every company, not every big company is doing the same thing. And if you, you know, are looking for kind of a big bike brand, maybe some of them really are treating the dealers a lot better than others and, you know, see what you really think and talk to other dealers and whatever it takes, but take it seriously. Anyhow. I'm wondering when someone reaches out to you for consulting, um, because I think that this is a conversation, this is a topic, you know, right here that might be of interest to people. What does that look like? Do you do a zoom or is it a phone call or how, how do you, what's the session look like? What's that? Give me an idea of how that is it different for everyone, actually. It could be different for everyone. I mean, the first thing I've done is ask people how they want to communicate. And, you know, I've always suggested Zoom because I think it just helps a little bit as far as, you know, understanding the other person when you can see him as well as talk to them. But of course, you know, before Zoom, we talk to people on the phone and that worked just fine. Mm -hmm. And so I don't anticipate doing a ton of traveling at this time. And so... Mostly, I think the consulting is going to be by remote communication. And, you know, I've been emailing people with things and talking to them and Zooming and all that. So it's it's just a mixture depending on the circumstances, for sure. Yeah. And I also see you've been, you're active in the MBDA forum. And the forum is a great spot for retailers to, you know, post their questions and help each other. You know, how do you feel about like the peer-to-peer learning? There is value in that, correct? There's a lot. There can be a lot of value in that. And it's, you know, it was definitely in the pre-Heather era of the NBDA. It was my favorite part about the NBDA was the forum. We had, it was very easily accessible Yahoo group and people, you know, just talked pretty often. And some of it was social and, you know, and easy to ignore, but there was, you know, real content to it. And definitely people that were taken, people took you seriously. It didn't matter whether you were new or, or experienced or whatever. If you had something you wanted help with, people took it seriously. Like they put their whole life into fixing things for you, but at least they gave you, even if it was an off the cuff answer, they gave you a sincere answer. You know, historically, nobody's been trying to sell anybody anything on it. Nobody's been trying to convince anybody, you know, of anything. They've just been trying to help one another. I hope it stays that way, but that's how it's been. And so I think it's really good. And there, there are problems that are simple where there's information that, but why not just get an answer? And the Monday Mingle is great. It's harder for people because it's, you know, it's time sensitive. It's only one hour a week. And if you don't have that hour available, you can't do it. But if you can, or if you can even occasionally do it, I think you'll find it well worthwhile. And especially if you think about what it is that you want out of it, because people want to help you get that out of it. Yeah, I've noticed someone, a retailer posted a question about, I think, service center profitability in the forum. And you responded back with this great response that asked specific questions, like targeted questions. And it really generated a lot of back and forth and interest in that thread as someone like my settings on the forum as I'm like, you know, I get all threads into my email. So I see all the action happening, which is good because I can, you know, stay on top of it. But 
I thought that was a really valuable conversation that the retailer who posted gained a lot of insight from. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. I appreciate the comment. I'm wondering, so you know this year that we rebranded America's Best Bike Shop Program to the Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards. For a couple of reasons, we wanted to extend outside of America and be more North American. And we wanted to get away from the word best because we think that everyone has, you know, really great qualities. So a little bit of rebrand. And we spoke a lot this year about traits that make an excellent bicycle retailer. If I had to ask you, which I've asked other people on the podcast before, in your opinion, what makes an excellent bicycle retailer? What would you say? Well, I'd say excellence is a little different to each retailer, but I think for many of us, it comes to having a really clear idea of how we want to serve our customer and trying to always keep that in mind so that we operate in a way that it does that, you know? So generally that's what I think, but I think that knowing that what you do is something that the customer values is something that's really going to help you be excellent and then help you in your, because you need to charge enough to sustain your business, your employees and yourself. You can't really achieve that excellence if you undervalue what you do. I think excellence is caring about your customers as individuals, recognizing them when they visit you. I think it's something some people you know, are really great at. I've had staff who just I can't believe how they know everybody's name when they walk in the door. They've only been in once before. But there are ways to work on it if you're not good at it. And it's really valuable. It really just builds the long-term value of your relationship and therefore the long-term value of your business. If you you know remember people and remember their bike, their family, their adventures, their preferences, whatever, but the more you can do that, that's real excellence in retail. Knowing when to move your conversation away from the social side and, you know, get to, you know, get it done. It's really kind of easy for the owner of a business who's working so much to feel like, oh, it's no big deal to spend half an hour talking to this customer. But you don't want to set a terrible example to your staff either about, you know, how you spend your time at work and like get, you know, a little bit of socializing and then getting, you know, to really helping them with what they came in for is important. That's so true. Like we have those conversations and we just get like stuck talking to someone, but you do, you have to be able to keep it, you know, keep it moving. (laughs) Knowing when to admit that you don't know the answer to a question is certainly a part of excellence. Knowing when you, when you don't know how to do something or can't help with somebody, you know, just upfront telling them that is important. I'll leave it to almost last because it's something I just harp on all the time and I didn't want to overdo it, but under promising and over delivering. I think is just a real key to excellence in everything about the store. You know, it's whether it's just to do with when a repair is going to get done, how well the bike is going to work when it's done, what the people should expect. Well, whatever, you know, it's just, it's just across the board. It's important when you deal with your employees, when you deal with your suppliers and your customers too. It's something that salespeople, it can be very difficult for them. It can be difficult for me. It can be difficult for everybody, but it's really valuable if you do it. I never tell somebody on the phone, I put them on hold. I never say, I'll be back in a second. I say, I'll be back in a couple of minutes if I think it'll take me half a minute to do it. Yeah. So then I'll leave the biggest thing I say for last. The most excellent thing, I think, is to recognize that we're in the wonderful position of being a beneficial force in the world. When we help people acquire, use, maintain, enjoy, and ride their bicycles, we're, we're helping keep them happy and healthy. 
we're keeping our local neighborhood and city, if we're in a city, quieter and safer and cleaner. We are supporting a mode of transportation that contributes to the sustainability of our environment. Really, for a long time, for over a decade before the climate change discussion became the climate crisis that it is now and getting worse, we knew what to do about it. It wasn't any mystery or secret. It was just we needed to drastically cut the amount of greenhouse gases that we're putting into the environment. We have to make a choice. That's all it is. We choose to do it or we choose not to do it. And, you know, when we help people use bicycles instead of motor vehicles, we're choosing to help make the situation better. It's not going to solve the problem by itself, certainly. We have to do everything we can if we want to make a difference. But this is a meaningful contribution uh, that our industry can make. And I feel we owe it to one another and we owe it especially to our children to take it seriously and make that choice. You brought up such fantastic points. And I, I mean, it's pretty awesome to be a bicycle retailer. Like if you think about the the change, the positive change that we can make, especially on the planet and the climate as we're seeing it, excellent, excellent feedback. And, you know, since I have you in the hot seat for a second here and you, you spoke about your the staff members memorizing names and, you know, you've successfully transitioned some of your business to staff members. I think you would be super qualified to ask, you know, in your opinion, and I know we have a lot of staff members who listen to this podcast, what makes an excellent bicycle retail staff member? I think what is an excellent retail staff member, an excellent employee is that they respect their coworkers, the customers and the company itself. And they act with the interests of all of them in their heart, that they have skills that are useful to the job that they're assigned to do. And they make an effort to keep learning more skills and more knowledge to make themselves more useful, that they speak up with their ideas and their suggestions and problems in a tactful, timely and constructive way. I think that there's a lot more you could say. I think the real question you started with is what makes an excellent staff member? What makes them is good hiring and good management, because you can take somebody with all the talent in the world, and if they are not encouraged and supported, they're not going to stay a good staff member. Or if you hire somebody who isn't interested in doing a good job, you know, you're going to have a very hard time making them into somebody who is. So it's critical what we do as managers, and then, you know, help them become all they can be. Yeah, it is a very pivotal role. You know, Neil, I'm wondering, if you were in the shop every day, still going every single day, running the business operations, is there any single thing you would focus on? I know that's really hard. It's like saying the best of something, right? It's almost like a not fair question, but. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Do you think there's anything um, that would be like one thing you focus on right now? Well, you know, if it were my, if it were my like bicycle shop, the store I just left behind, I would, you know, kind of try to get back to doing things services that we were strengths of ours before the pandemic that we've dropped for, I think, for very good reasons, but as quickly as possible, get back into doing that. And so doing more, reestablishing our rental program. We rented bikes for over 30 years. We stopped last March or February, whatever it was. There's lots of demand for it. You know, I would I would do that. I would look for how we could bring our fitting services back up to the level that they used to be and further than they were. We have started doing classes again, but, you know, I think we should be, you know, pursuing that even more than, you know, trying to find ways to do it. I think 
the person who's doing it for us doing a great job. But I think that, you know, we should find a way to do even more with that. So everybody's got different things. That's what I would do there. Excellent advice. Yeah, I'm sure there's many things that that we stopped, you know, that we stopped doing because we couldn't do or whatever, or we, you know, sold our rental fleet. But yeah, it's a great opportunity, great time right now to, to look back at those and think, oh, what could we, you know, reintroduce? Any opportunities that you see, Neil, that are like, you know, really standing out to you for the future of the bicycle industry? Well, I think it's really clear that the future of the bicycle industry is electric bikes. I think that, you know, we can still have specialty stores that don't deal in electric bikes or don't primarily deal in electric bikes and could be fine if you're keeping it small and keeping it focused. That's great. But I think for if you want to be a broad spectrum bike shop, you're going to be mostly an electric bike shop. And so the opportunity I'm talking about is in servicing electric bikes. I think the more expertise that you develop there, the stronger your whole company is going to be. Just like our repair shop has always been the heart of our business to keep our regular bike customers going, even though they don't see the repair shop as much. That is what's behind you know, what we do. And so um, I think developing the expertise and to learn to service and accept a service, not just a very limited number of them, but the opportunity is in addressing the full spectrum of what's out there, which means in many cases, not very high quality things. It's not that you're trying to encourage people to buy that kind of bike. You know, it's it's really low quality electric bikes are just kind of a travesty, really. Those batteries are just severe toxic waste. And if the bike doesn't hold up for as many years as it could, then batteries just become a problem. But anyhow, if you learn to do it, you become such a beneficial resource to the community. And there should be a lot of potential to earn a very good living doing that and supporting the strength of your store. So I think that's the the biggest thing. You have to learn to service your own bikes, but the more you can learn to service other bikes, the better. Yeah. And I'm thinking there's an opportunity too for consulting because I mean, how do you set up your service shop for servicing e-bikes? You know, there's so many questions that might go into that. So it opens up a whole nother can. You know, Neil, uh, we're just about out of time today for the podcast. I'm thinking about people who retailers might want to reach out to you. I know you go to mbda.com. There's the P2 consult page. Maybe your email. Would you share your email or contact information? Neil at mbda.com would be the best way to write to me. And then you're certainly welcome to call my cell phone too, which is 206-271-7047. Awesome. Thank you, Neil. This is a jam-packed hour of all your insight and tips and a little bit about you. And I can't thank you enough for you know your work. I'm really looking forward to this fall and next year and working closely with you. So just thank you so much. And yeah, for anyone listening, it's Neil, N-E-I-L at nbda.com. I guess I'll see you like next week in Florida, right? <laughs> That's great, Heather. Awesome. Thank you. So that is it. I invite you to connect with me and come on Bicycle Retail Radio, share your story with our listeners. The MBDA has been around since 1946. We are celebrating 75 years existing to support retailers. If you'd like to join the MBDA, you can do so on our website. If you'd like to support the show, don't forget to subscribe and share your favorite episode on social media with your friends. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. And with this, we go. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. <laughs>